my God is still, help me out, in control. Would you give God praise this morning? Would you give him praise? Come on. Aloha, ahi, ahi. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want you to turn to the epistle of Hebrews. The letter of Hebrews, chapter 12, starting in verse 3. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. My name is Ezekiel Ethan Kapua Kailima Tomaselli. It don't matter. Everybody calls me Zeke. And it has been my joy for nearly 20 years since I was 18 years old to preach this glorious gospel that I get to teach you today. I did not grow up in a quiet church, if you understand where I'm coming from. We were a pretty loud church. And we were loud because we had a reason to be loud. God is in control. He has given us this glorious gospel to remind us, brothers and sisters, our God is in control. For the last 20 years of my ministry, I've not been perfect, but I've been on this glorious direction. This direction of grace, this direction of mercy. And we found out that in my salvation gift, I had the gift to exhort the body of Christ. And by God's grace, he took an island boy from a small little town called Papaiko. <laughs> and this southern belle from Shelbyville, Tennessee, and we met right in Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada. No, we did not get married by Elvis. <laughs> but listen to me, it was through church planting. I was a sinner, lost, grew up in the church. My dad and my mom was first generation Christians in our Hawaiian genealogy. No people we know that ever followed Christ outside of my parents, and I'm a second generation not just preacher, but a second-generation church planter. Both my parents planted churches in all of Polynesia, and my in-laws, as you know, planted churches in the West. Started in Vegas, and somehow my sinful journey ended me up in the most sinful city of all, but where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And I met this church plant, the, the, the church planter, Vance Pittman, took me under his wing. I be he became my father in the faith. And he led me to Jesus at the age of 18, and he handed me the keys to youth ministry. Not very smart. <laughs> but God preserved me through those years. Met Lane. We got married. And then years down the road, 12 years later from my regeneration, God sent us back to my home of Hawaii, right in my town where I sinned. And today, God has planted a beautiful fellowship called Ohana church, which means family church, and out of that church, God has blessed us with 10 church plants all throughout Polynesia to the Pacific Rim. Why? Why? 
Because God is in control. That's why. Our God is in control. And that's not even the funny part yet. God took a 2008, 2009 graduate of Cascade High School, senior in high school named Marcus McBee, to move out with me and my family to start this church. And today he's leading Ohana Church while I'm here in this town. Isn't that cool? And one of the greatest things, when we went to Hawaii to plant a church, God had bigger plans for my family, just Lane and I. He allowed us to adopt three beautiful Hawaiian boys who today is members of the church with mommy and daddy. One of them was regenerated here back in August, got baptized in here. And, and God is just showing how much he's in control. Listen to me. I've pastored in Tennessee. I've pastored in Las Vegas. I've pastored in Hawaii, three completely different contexts. And God is still in control. So I want to share my sermon. I want to start my sermon with a statement. And it is my aim to cause some healthy tension in this room when I make this statement. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. All right. And I want to remind you, this is very biblical because nothing cuts and nothing divides like the word of truth. I hear a lot of amens this corner. Here's the statement. God, sovereign creator of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, he will do what he has to do to fix our eyes on him. Let me say that again. God will do what he needs to do to fix our eyes on him. And this is the truth for the believers in the book of Hebrews. There's much in this book of Hebrews to grasp if you did an honest verse-by-verse -verse expositional study. And I want to highlight a few of them. First, the audience is the first century Jewish Christians. We know it is to be true primarily because the unknown author has a historical and theological scholarship of the Old Testament. Hence the name of the book. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that the author has a relationship with the disciples of Jesus. So there is a scholarship and an honorarium in which this unknown author has credibility because he understands his context. He understands his histor history of the Jewish culture, but also he understands the theological notion that these, are, these people are the people of God. But secondly, the purpose of Hebrews is to convey a Christological high view of Jesus. Can I get a witness out there, right? In chapter 1, Jesus is the supreme son of God. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is the founder of salvation. In chapters 4 to 7, Jesus is the great high priest. In chapters 8 through 11, Jesus is the new covenant. And in chapters 12 and 13, Jesus is the founder and perfecter 
of our faith. Can I get an amen on, in this room, right? Thank God that he won't only found our faith, but he will perfect it. We found out in chapters 10, 13, 32 to 34, that these believers are enduring much persecution, and some are even abandoning the faith because of it. For clarity, I want to be very clear. The persecution we're talking about in this book is not social media disagreements. No, these Jewish believers were being beaten and placed in prison for their affiliation and proclamation of the gospel. Do you have that kind of hardship today? But then we find out in this letter that God's plan for them was not to hide them from such hardship, but to continue the course he commissioned them to partake on with his first disciples, as we see in Matthew 28, that they would be a part of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving my family that way. Six months ago when we came into those doors, you've done nothing but love my family. You've advanced the gospel in our own hearts. I promise you this, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't the case. In fact, you've shown that love in a specific way. You've either learned how to say our kids' names or spell them. <laughs> you laugh, but in Hawaiian culture, names are everything. You've showed that love. You've not just said that love. Your pastor has come to my doorstep. Your pastor has given me a free meal. You all have invited us into your family. Listen to me. The mark of a true church is one that loves people where they're at. No matter where they come from. And you have displayed that. And therefore, the author of Hebrews is reminding them, hey, don't trip. God is in control, and he's about to reveal that to you. You see, it's, it's, it's odd and interesting that us Christians, we love the God who is gentle. We love the God who is kind, soft, 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 and generous which are all attributes of our loving God, amen? But what about the God who corrects? What about the God who rebukes? What about the God who reproves? God will do what he has to do to fix our eyes on him. So you, if you have your word, and I hope you do, would you stand with me in the reading of Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3. And if you're ready, say, I'm ready. Amen. Hallelujah. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten to the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one, say that out, he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather say those words with me, be healed in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you manifest your presence through these words? Lord, may the written word articulate the living word. And Holy Spirit of God, may you convict us where it needs conviction. May you, may you grow us where there's growth needed. And ultimately, may you receive all the honor and praises that you are due for and you deserve. We affirm this in the name of Jesus, and everyone says, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. The title of my message is The Beauty of Brokenness. First off, I want to make a claim that I don't stand up here as a perfect man of God. In fact, it is in my imperfection that the Lord is perfecting me to the beauty of his name, and he does so ultimately through the proclamation and study of the word of God. And like the Hebrew believers, there's really three re reminders that this author it's conveying to these believers about the beauty of brokenness. The beauty of brokenness. And that first reminder is he's telling them that brokenness starts with Jesus. Can I get a witness out there? Verse 3 says, consider. This C word is a big word in the book of Hebrews. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sin or such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer conveys a connection between the brokenness of Jesus and with these believers today. He does so in two ways. The first way, he's telling them, consider how Jesus was broken. How is this going to take place? We have to go back to the gospel accounts. Here's some analogies of the gospel account. In Matthew, a crown of thorns was placed on the head of Jesus in chapter 27. Mark chapter 15 they beat Jesus and they mocked him at Pilate's home. Luke 23, the only account is when Jesus goes to Herod's house and they make fun of him and examine him as a false teacher. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, Jesus is flogged and whipped. All these Gospels share some of these details. But nevertheless, each Gospel shows a torturous execution of the brokenness of Jesus. So consider how Jesus was broken. Secondly, when you're thinking about brokenness starting with Jesus, secondly, consider why Jesus was broken for you. The writer reminds them that they must remember the brokenness of Christ so that in their persecution, 
in their imprisonment, they will not grow weary or faint-hearted. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah prophesied this why factor. And he says this in Isaiah 55, 53, 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jumping up to Romans 4, Paul says this. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you didn't get the book of the Bible, it's all about Jesus today. If you did not realize that when we were going through Exodus, it's all about Jesus. In Jonah this past Wednesday, it's all about Jesus. It's not just the easy Sunday school answer. It's the truth. Because the brokenness of Jesus is for our benefit. Number one, brokenness starts with Jesus. But number two, brokenness sustains us to Jesus. In verse four is a challenging verse theologically because the author uses either boxing or wrestling language here. All throughout the book of Hebrews, he uses this Olympic style of athleticism, which is race, which is a race. Paul uses a similar uh, analogy. But in this case, you have Greek terminology and Greek phrasing and language that uses either a, a contact sport with boxing or wrestling. And what happens here is that he describes to the believers that they're facing off against an opponent. And it's used both in a singular singular way and a plural way it's sin or sins it says this look at this it says in verse 4 in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood now let me be very clear this is not saying that their struggle is with committing acts of sin all right rather their struggle is with the attacks of the sinful world this is why you need to understand books of the Bible verse by verse expositionally. If not, we're going to just say whatever we think it means. Because we got to go back to chapter 10, verse 32 to 34 to understand chapters 12, verse 4. And it's in connection with this one word, not yet. The New Living Translation says it this way. After all, you have not yet, you have not yet, after all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. This is encouraging, all right? This word not yet gives a little more detail of the struggle against their sin battle. Here's two observations we can hold on to. Either the believers are hiding because of the intense persecution, or the believers are not experiencing a persecution that was explained in chapter 10. Whatever the reason, here's the contrast between these believers and Jesus. You see it? Well, listen to me. Jesus' life, his struggle against the sins of the word made him shed his blood. At this point, these believers has not yet struggled enough to shed his blood. What do you think the author is saying then? Preach the gospel. Amen. Teach the gospel. Live the gospel. Sing the gospel. Pray the gospel. Shout hallelujah for the gospel. The struggle in the gospel sustains them, sustains them so clearly that it encourages many to press on in the gospel. 
So as an encouragement to continue strong in the faith, the writer uses the word discipline to connect these believers to the reality that brokenness sustains them to Jesus. Look at verses 5 and 6. He acknowledges his scholarship of the Old Testament by quoting the proverb. Chapter 3, verse 11 to 12, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplined the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I want you to check this out. In the Greek lexicon, the word discipline literally means child rearing. Where I come from, that is a good old-fashioned butt whooping. <laughs> listen to me. Now listen to me. You think of the motion of, this, of, of Israel through the Old Testament. God disciplined his people. Right? Listen to me. I know we live in a generation of cancel culture, extreme dynamics of social justice, right? Theological divisiveness. Listen to me very clearly. You cannot redefine what God has already defined. If God says discipline is child rearing, guess what, First Baptist? You're about to get some whooping. And I mean it. Because when the truth is proclaimed from the pulpit, then it will cut like a two-edged sword. But I come to church to get encouraged. I come to church to feel good about my sin. I come to church to, man, hopefully, man, I can get some ice cream from the pastor. It's a side joke, right? Listen to me. We all laugh, but we all have our own form of Christianity in this room. That may not look like what we're preaching on Sunday. Guilty as charged. I don't stand up here as a perfect person. I stand up here in need of Jesus. You in need of Jesus today? And that's what the author is saying, that, that, that brokenness starts with Jesus and brokenness sustains us to Jesus. And I love, this is an application of truth we can all hold on to. Discipline is bridging the gap from who we are to who God has called us to be. Let me say that again. Discipline is bridging the gap from who we are to who God has called us to be. So therefore, for these, belie- these believers, guess what was their discipline? Persecution. Affliction. But there's beauty in it. Don't feel like you've been hit over the head with a bat, all right? There's encouragement out of this discipline because there's four benefits we see verse by verse in these verses. The first one is discipline results into endurance. Look at verse 7a. It says that it is for discipline, brothers and sisters, that you have to what? Endure. Secondly, the second benefit, discipline results into legitimacy. Verses 7 to 8, the latter part of verse 7 to 8, it says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there from whom his father does not discipline? There's a cultural notion that discipline was the rhythm of life in these people's lives since Genesis. He's pointing back to his scholarship. He says, who does not discipline their child? 
Or we can name a few today, right? And I'm not saying that to be funny. It goes on to say, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, this is the reality of this church today. You want this church to be a gospel-centered church? All one of you, okay. You want this church to be a gospel-centered church? We got to practice church discipline. Oh, oh, Zeke, I went from the church down the road, and I don't know about that and all that. Listen to me. I could care less about the church down the road. The Bible says we must practice church discipline. But what we think about when it comes to church discipline is just the corrective side. No, there's another beauty part of church discipline that we forsake, even as church leaders, and it's, listen to me, the formal side. Loving people where they are. Some of them may not talk like you. Some of them may smoke a cigarette. Some of them may not have the external coolness of a Christianese, right? Like you. We all, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Man, I tell you what, this church is going to look beautiful when it looks like it's community. With broken people, where the externalness looks like all kinds of colors, shades, whatever the case, but the gospel is the central totality of our lives. That starts with discipline. The third benefit, discipline results into holy living. Look at verse 9 and 10, the latter part. It says, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Thank God that he is a God that shares his holiness. Thank God that he doesn't leave us where we are. He doesn't forsake us where we are, but he has continued to finish to do the work what he's planted in us at the moment of salvation so that in God we might have life and life everlasting. I may have an issue this week, but I have Christ. I may be going through this situation, but I have Christ. That's what holiness does. Holiness blots out that that is unholy. But discipline results into holy living. But the last benefit, discipline results into bearing fruit. Can I get a hallelujah there? Verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline. For the moment, all discipline. Say it with me. One, two, three. For the moment, all discipline. Seems painful. Rather than pleasant. But later it yields, listen to these words, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Are you trained by discipline this morning? In other words, like brokenness, discipline sustains us to Jesus. Now listen to me, this is not a condition, but rather the evidence of the power and work of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life. Why? Because at the end of the day, Jesus gets all the glory. John G. Butler, the theologian, says the result of discipline is righteousness, which is a peaceful result. Righteousness comes before peace. If you want peace, you must first have righteousness. Discipline's work is, produce, is to produce righteousness, which brings peace. The big reason we have so little peace in the world is that we have so little righteousness in the world. And I like to call this positional righteousness and practical righteousness. 
Positional righteousness says, in Christ, I am made righteous. But practical righteousness says this, but I got some flaws, everybody. And the righteous God of the universe is working it out for my good and his glory. You see, all that matters is that God is faithful. Whether you're faithful or not, whether you come to Sunday school or not, whether you come to Sunday church or Wednesday, as our kids call it, Wednesday church, to all the children out there, God is faithful, and he'll finish his work through discipline. And here's my last reminder. The author of Hebrews is telling these believers, brokenness strengthens you to Jesus. Verse 12 says, therefore, meaning everything we just talked about, therefore, lift your drooping hands. Man, it's biblical to raise your hands in the church, baby, right? <laughs> lift your drooping hands. As a football coach, one of the things I hate the most is when our quarterback throws an interception and they're like this, oh, poor me. <laughs> poor me. <laughs> lift your hands. Walk strong. Just say it was the receiver's fault, not your throw. <laughs> Saint of God, lift your hands. Stop being the Eeyore of Christianity. Whoa, poor old me. You have something to be excited about. Even in your tribulation, you have something to be excited about. So lift your hands. And strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In much discouragement, these believers needed to be strengthened. The writer is reminding them that brokenness is the tool in which God will remind them of his faithfulness because ultimately our brokenness makes us more dependent on Jesus. That's a good place to be. And I love the Bible because theologically speaking, the Bible gives some illustrative things that remind us of the beauty of brokenness. And the first thing is the olive. If you look at an olive, you wouldn't think much about it, right? It's a green thing, whatever, right? But it's not what's outside of the olive that's matter. It's what's inside of the olive. But you can't get inside the olive unless you crush it. When you crush the olive in its brokenness, it presents olive oil. In the Old Testament, olive oil was used for healing, even in the New Testament. But also olive oil was used to anoint kings and leaders of tribes. We also find out that oil represents who? The Holy Spirit of God. Baptists, we can say that. It's biblical. Say it. But the second word picture... An analogy is a grape, or grapes, plural. And they're pretty, but what's on the inside is much more beautiful than what's on the outside. And in the grape, the grape must be pressed in its brokenness to see its beauty. And we get wine from it. New wine in which Jesus explains of his penal substitutionary atonement. See, these two, these two illustrations reminds us that there is beauty in brokenness. 
But then there's a final piece that if I did not convey, I would have not be honest with the gospel today. And it's the God-man Jesus. A perfect God-man who did not need to do what he did. Perfect in all his ways. Righteous, holy, bold. But listen to me, saint of God. What ministers to me today is that the Savior of the world did not just tell us to do something. He actually said, just wait for me. And he did what we could never do for ourselves. Our Savior was crushed for our transgressions. A moment in time where theologians believe that was the one moment that God the Father turned his back on his son so that this penal substitutionary atonement may cover your sins, saints of God. He was crushed. He was pierced. He was mocked. He was jabbed. He was teased. He was whipped. But in all of that brokenness, we see God's beauty displayed on the cross, on the hill of Golgotha, that while I was at my worst, God gave me his best. Amen. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is not you trying to live up to God's standards. The power of the gospel is you can't do nothing, guy. Therefore, God came down to do what you could not do, I could not do, y'all could not do. Only Jesus could do on the cross. This is what fires me up about the church, that we got this gospel to proclaim. We don't have to be shy about lifting our hand, shouting hallelujah, getting uncomfortable by that Hawaiian next to me with all the tattoos. We don't have to get it. We can be excited because we have a reason to be excited. I mean, if we can go to football games and shout out for a pigskin being tossed around, we can go to church and say hallelujah. Because the beauty of brokenness is displayed through Jesus himself. Amen. So where do we go from here? The worship team is going to come up. And they're going to lead us in a time of response. And there's only one way to go from here. Listen to this biblical truth. Embrace the reality that brokenness is not a burden from God. Rather, brokenness is a blessing from God. Therefore, everybody look at me. God will use an illness in your life to break you. God will use a financial disturbance in your life to break you. God will use a broken relationship in a marriage, whether it's because of unfaithfulness or whether it's because it's passiveness, to break you. God will use people in your life to break you. God will use all circumstances like sending a weird old Hawaiian short guy with white glasses to share with you that God will break you. 
This would change the way we view theology in the scriptures. That God also loves through chastising his people. Not just fun, snugly, feel-good God, but a God who will conform you to the image of his son. And that's what I believe Romans 8.28 says, that God causes all things to work together for good, right? Those who are, who are loved by him and called according to the rest But get down to the next verse. It says to conform you to the will of God. Just from where I'm standing, I grew up in a poor family, poverty. So all I know in my life growing up, as you would know, is ghetto, just island style. You have a lot here in Chevville. Even as a millennial, we still had outhouses in Hawaii when I grew up to the age of, I was eight. Some of you kids, my kids don't even know what that is. But there was beauty in those times. We planted a church, and every week we thought, where this money is going to come from? Because 90% of our church were unchurched, and they all got saved in the process of being a part of our church. All native Hawaiians and locals. And we always struggled with finances and all that because of the people we were reaching. Oh boy, but did God break me in that time to realize all I needed was Him. And all I have is Him. Saints of God, however that lies on, lands on you today, listen to me. This is not the end. This is just the beginning today. Because there's three ways we can respond in light of this message. Number one, confess your need for Jesus daily. We are in our baptism life, or Baptist life, specifically Southern Baptist, we are eventful people. We base our salvation based on events, or the Crusades, or Sunday morning service. Those things are good, and, but where I saw true life change, just from my experience in the last 20 years, is not a single event, but a moment-by-moment, gospel-breathing, gospel-living, exegesis of the scripture, and hanging on to those who God was calling them to the folk. So let me share you this. Ministry is messy because people are messy. I'm messy. You're messy. In fact, look at your neighbor and say, you're messy. Thank you for participating. Keep it forgetting, I'm not in Hawaii. People don't do that here, right? So confess your need for God daily. This is my prayer. I do it every day. I say, Lord, I need you. Lord, you don't need me. But Lord, you have chosen me. So today I choose you. It's a simple prayer I've done for many years of my life. Not as a ritual, but as a blessing that God has given me. Secondly, commune with those who belong to Jesus weekly. Please don't be that person that says the church is not a building. But guess what? That's where God's people meet. Gather. Some can. Amen. We get it. I understand that. But as a pastor, I know. I know some people and their theology. Listen to me. I tried my best to stay under the radar when I came here. But the problem is I'm messy. I talk too much. Listen to me, church, 
is not a place you attend. Church is a people you belong with. Belong. 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 Lastly, consider how your brokenness can minister to others to Jesus faithfully. I've told Pastor Jeff this and some of you in here. Ministry has not been the hardest part of my journey coming up here. Being in pastoral ministry has not been the hardest part of my journey. The hardest part of my journey, you may think it's silly, but it is, but it is true, has been my involvement in football. We, have, we came from a beautiful football program in the islands. First outer islands to win two state championships in the last eight years. Uh, God did amazing things. Some of those families became members of our church, got saved, got baptized, started ministering. They, were, they became my stat girls. They became my booster moms. And God did amazing things. And then when I came up here trying to stay out of the radar, got me connected. God got me connected with Liberty School. Now, you may not know the dynamics of Southside Shelbyville, but I'm learning it more and more. And I can see why they needed help with football. Not because they were poor in football, because nobody would, nobody would, get, would belong. But oh boy, does football bring out the ugly in me. <laughs> Especially when you go for, come from Hawaii in the last eight years, we literally lost only four games in eight years. And this year, God will break you, especially he did me, by losing every single game we played. And we've not even scored a touchdown this year. You may laugh, but that hurts. But for God's good, for God, God's good to me and for his glory alone. I want to show you a picture up on the screen. This picture reminds me of God's brokenness. Every young man on that screen, look at those smiles. Don't let that fool you. There are a bunch of homemade sin right there, all right? <laughs> but listen to me. I'm not trying to be funny. The reality is these boys God used to break me, to remind me, Zeke, you're not all that. I could tell you every testimony in this life. The coaches too, we're not, we all fall short. And, and man, there, there's things about football that brings out the good and the ugly, but the reality is, this is where God brought us for a season. And you may say, how does this connect with First Baptist? If it wasn't for you, there is a lot of things that would have not happened in this program if First Baptist did not step up. You've purchased equipment and gear. When all I told Pastor Jeff, all we got is like several people on the team. But by God's grace, he, he gave us over 60 to fill two, three teams. And every day before we practice, we go on one knee. We do a small little doctrinal devotion. I remember one time we talked about baptism 
And you know, in this neck of the woods, baptism can go any direction. But it was beautiful. And listen to me. These boys persevered to the end. They played all seven games. Let me, rem let me remind you. Let's finish strong, First Baptist Church. Let's remember that brokenness starts with Jesus. That brokenness sustains us to Jesus. And that brokenness, listen to me, strengthens us to Jesus. God will do what he has to do to fix our eyes on him. And if you believe that, give me a hearty amen up in this room and give God glory.